Welcome to Words of Grace, radio ministry of Elder Ben Winslet, pastor of the Flint River Primitive Baptist Church near Huntsville, Alabama. We invite you to stay tuned to today's broadcast. broadcast today is entitled, It is Finished. Today's the final message in our series on statements of sovereign grace, sovereign grace statements from John's Gospel. Now, while these are statements found in John's Gospel, if you noticed, each and every one of these statements that we have focused on over the past few weeks in this series has been a saying of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so from these remarks, from these statements that Jesus made, we have very, I believe, clearly presented the notion that Jesus himself taught that salvation is by the sovereign grace of God. God is sovereign in salvation. And today we're going to consider John chapter 19 and verse 30, in which Jesus very plainly and powerfully declares that it is finished. This is one of the final sayings of Jesus on the cross, and it's one that gives us great hope and great peace in our lives, that Jesus has completed salvation, that everything he was supposed to do he did, and he has saved his people from their sins. I've enjoyed this series on the radio immensely. We've covered a lot of ground. There are other statements that we could consider if we wanted to, But I believe that we've painted a very clear picture that John presents a very consistent message of grace, sovereign grace, salvation by God's sovereign grace in his gospel account. Last time in this series, before we took a brief pause to share some thoughts about the coming of our Lord for Christmas, we considered John chapter 1. John's gospel opens up with statements about his sovereign grace. We considered John chapter 3. We considered passages in John chapter 5, John chapter 6, John chapter 8, John chapter 10, John chapter 17. And as we focused on statements from those particular chapters, we would often reference other places in John's Gospel and in the Word of God as well, demonstrating that the consistent message of salvation that Jesus presented in his ministry was one of sovereign grace. Today, we consider what is, in my opinion, one of the grandest passages in all of Scripture as it speaks to the complete victory of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, in His redemptive work. This is such a favorite passage to me personally, 
and to us here at Flint River Primitive Baptist Church that we even have this statement as the engraving on the table that is in front of the pulpit. So each Sunday as people arrive at church, one of the very first things that they see are these words of our Lord. It is finished. As I'm in the pulpit, if they glance down to the table in front of the pulpit, what they see over and over and over again is it is finished. Generally, it's the practice of various denominations, if they have a traditional setup with a table in front of the pulpit, the wording on the table has something to do with communion. And that's a good thing, because traditionally that table is used to divide up the bread and distribute the fruit of the vine, the wine that's distributed to those in the congregation. But being a Baptist church, we have communion here twice a year. Baptists generally do not have communion as much as other some other denominations. Some have it monthly, some have it every Sunday, but the practice of Baptists is to have it once a year to four times a year, just generally speaking. Usually, what you'll see on a communion table is this do in remembrance of me. And as a little boy, I'm thankful that going to various types of Baptist churches, whether Southern Baptist, Independent Baptist, or Primitive Baptist, those words usually were right in front of me on the communion table or the front table, the table in front of the pulpit, right there under a nice flower arrangement. Sometimes there might be a collection plate on the table for people to put a donation in. You might have a stack of paper. You may have a hymnal sitting there, but generally you'd have that table and those words, this do in remembrance of me, would be there engraved in the front of that table. As a little boy, I would wonder what does that mean? And I believe that's one of the great things about putting a statement such as that on the table that's visible that everybody sees. Well, here at Flint River, we have those words, it is finished, because I want that to be at the forefront of everyone's minds as they're in our church, as they're singing, as they're listening to someone read the Scripture, as they're listening to a sermon. If they're just in the building vacuuming, those words, it is finished, are going to be in front of their eyes. And this is very intentional because that is the message of the gospel. The gospel is glad tidings of great joy. And that joy, those glad tidings, that good news that the gospel is, is built upon this reality that the Lord Jesus Christ paid for the sins of his people. There's a lot of different ideas in the world about the coming of Christ. And I love to think about that important question in Matthew 16, who do you say the Son of Man is? Who do you believe that Jesus Christ is? And of course, as Peter said, he's the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he knew that because God the Father had revealed it unto him, just as if you know that, it's because God the Father has revealed that unto you. But there's a lot of different ideas in the world about what Jesus came to do. Did Jesus come to make us all healthy and wealthy? Well, no, not in this life. You're not going to be healthier and more wealthy if you're a person of greater faith, as is so commonly taught among prosperity gospel preachers. Did Jesus come as some sort of a social justice warrior? You sometimes hear Jesus painted that way, but that's not why Jesus came into this world to preach social justice. Jesus rarely even mentioned anything that had anything to do with human earthly politics. He came for something other than that, which we will talk about on today's broadcast. What did Jesus come to do? I want people to know that Jesus came to this world to die for his people 
and with his dying words declares it is finished. I want that to identify very clearly for anyone who walks into the door at our church what we believe about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a favorite passage of mine, and it's a favorite passage of our church. If you preach, it is finished. At Flint River Primitive Baptist Church, you're going to have somebody amen what you have to say about it. In fact, there's a hymn in our hymnal entitled, It Is Finished, and that's one that we love to sing. We don't sing it as often as we used to, but that's one that we have enjoyed singing in the past and need to revive the usage of, I believe, in our present day, because it's a beautiful hymn that conveys the message that we consider today as we bring our Sovereign Grace Statements series from the book of John to a close. Now, as we already said, this is one of the seven sayings of Jesus upon the cross. You don't find all of these sayings in one particular gospel account, but you have to go to all four gospel accounts, and interestingly enough, you don't have six, you don't have eight, you don't have nine, you have seven sayings of Jesus upon the cross divided between these four gospel accounts, and that Number seven is a number of biblical completeness. I do not find it coincidental at all that there would be seven recorded statements of Jesus in the Bible as he hung upon the cross. Matthew and Mark both contain where Jesus quotes Psalm 22 and says, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? You can go to Matthew 27, 46 and read that with your own eyes. The Aramaic is transliterated into English in those passages. In Luke chapter 23, verse 34, saying number two, Jesus would say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It's interesting to know that right there at the moment when Jesus is dying upon the cross, he's praying for the forgiveness of some of the people there who are participating in his crucifixion. Father, forgive them. And I would just point out that any time Jesus prayed, he never prayed contrary to the will of God. And every time Jesus prayed, God the Father heard him and answered. And so Jesus is literally praying for the forgiveness of some of the people that are taking part in his crucifixion, meaning there are some people who were there at the crucifixion that Jesus saved. He was literally saving them as they were participating in his crucifixion. Number three, in response to this dying thief who had a complete 180 because he reviled Jesus one moment and the next moment he is praising him and defending him and asking him to remember him when he comes into his kingdom. Jesus tells him in Luke 23, 43, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. At that man's death, he went to be with God in paradise, which is amazing and beautiful and marvelous because that was a dying thief. That was not a priest. That was not a prophet. That was not a religious man that we know of. He was a reviler of Christ at one moment, and the next moment he was praising Christ. What happened to him that enabled that, that caused that? Why the 180? Well, this man was born of God as he hung upon the cross. And as he begins to call out to Jesus, Jesus says, you're going to be with me today in paradise. In John chapter 19 and verse 26, Jesus tells Mary to behold her son and tells John to behold his mother. Basically, what he just did was say, Mary, John is now your son John, Mary is now your mother. Now, John is a son of Zebedee. They're not related. Mary's not literally John's mom. But Jesus is placing his mother Mary in the care of the apostle John. John is a young man. 
believed to be younger than the other apostles, and he would be the last living apostle in the world, the longest living apostle in the world. Though he suffered exile on the Isle of Patmos, it's believed that John died of natural causes. He was the only one who did not suffer a martyr's death. And Jesus, knowing all of this in advance, says, John, you take care of my mother. Mom, mother, go with John. He is to you as a son. Saying number five, Jesus would say in John chapter 19 and verse 28, I thirst. And then number six, after he had drank of the vinegars, we saw a moment ago, he says, it is finished. He bows his head. He gives up the ghost. And then number seven, the last statement of Jesus as he was hanging upon the cross was, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit, which is much like other of these statements of fulfillment of prophecy. When Jesus said, why hast thou forsaken me? He's literally quoting Psalm 22. When Jesus says, I thirst, he's literally citing an Old Testament passage. When he says, Father, into thy hands I come into my spirit, he's literally citing an Old Testament passage. So let's consider today's passage, John chapter 19 and verse 30, in which Jesus, as he received the vinegar, said, It is finished, and bowed his head and gave up the ghost. First of all, this concept, this statement, it is finished, is connected with Old Testament prophecy. When Jesus says, I thirst, he's not merely saying that because he is a human being who is now at this point thirsty because of everything that he had gone through. Undoubtedly, he was thirsty. If you read the narrative of the crucifixion, Jesus is arrested after praying all night in the garden. He's arrested overnight. And as they take him, they beat him. He's put before three mock trials. There's no record of him having food or drink. They would scourge him, and then they would make him carry his cross all the way to Golgotha through a angry, hysterical mob. You can imagine how thirsty and how tired you would be if you had to carry a cross and walk this great distance from Pilate all the way to Golgotha, to Calvary, where Jesus would be crucified. Undoubtedly, Jesus is thirsty. Now, he is completely God, he is deity, he is divine, but he's also completely human in every way, yet without sin. Jesus was a body, soul, and spirit human being. We call this the hypostatic union. He is divine, and yet he is human. He's the Son of God and he's the son of man. But when Jesus said, I thirst, he's not merely asking for something to drink. Jesus is fulfilling Scripture. Now, notice in the book of Matthew, chapter 27, as they take Jesus to the cross and he is crucified, at the very beginning of this, they gave him vinegar to drink mingled with gall, and when he had tasted thereof, he would not drink. Now, in this passage, we read that as they try to give Jesus vinegar, something to drink, that he rejected it. And the reason I believe that he rejected it is because this vinegar is, notice what Matthew says in Matthew twenty-seven thirty-four is mingled with gall. You might not know what gall is, but it was actually a sedative. It was something that would have numbed the pain that he was experiencing. It wouldn't take it away, but it would take much of the edge off of it. Jesus refuses the sedative. He refuses the gall. And I believe personally that Jesus is refusing pain relief here. 
Jesus says, I'm not going to have any pain relief. I'm going to drink the cup that the Father has given me to drink of, which is to experience the wrath of God for my people upon the cross to suffer for their sins and to die and bring them salvation. And so when they offer Jesus, as was very common when they crucified people in that day, as some feigned, warped sense of mercy to give them a pain reliever as they hung there in excruciating pain upon the cross. That word excruciating literally comes from the same word as crucified in its etymology. The history of that word excruciating comes from crucified because to be crucified was to suffer a hideous, horrendous, excruciating form of death. It was a very, very cruel form of death that involved suffocation and muscle cramping and pain from the nails going through your hands and your feet. It was a terrible way to die. And Jesus, when he's offered the pain reliever, he refuses it. And yet at the same time, before his death, they come back with vinegar again when he says, I thirst. And as that touches his lips, he gives up the ghost. Notice they come back to him in Matthew's gospel a second time in verse 48. After Jesus said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Immediately, one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with vinegar and put it on a reed and gave him to drink. So there are two different times recorded in Matthew when one took vinegar on a sponge to Jesus. The first time he refuses. The second time would be this John chapter 19 time when Jesus says, I thirst. He takes the vinegar and he passes away. He gives up the ghost. He dies upon the cross for his people. Why take that now? when he refused the vinegar the first time, aside from the fact that he was not going to numb the pain, as we already have stated. Well, Psalm 69 and verse 21, notice this passage of Scripture. They gave me also gall for my meat, and in my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. Jesus is literally doing this at this moment, not merely because he's thirsty. Certainly he had to be, again, But Jesus is doing this to fulfill Scripture. John chapter 19, notice how fulfilling Scripture is connected with this act of asking for something to drink. Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the Scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. And as soon as he took the vinegar, he cried out with a loud voice. He gave up the ghost. He said, it is finished. And he died upon the cross. There are other passages that talk about the fact that he would be thirsty You see in Psalm 22 and verse 15, his tongue cleaves to his jaws. I believe that that statement is also referring to the fact that he would be thirsty upon the cross. But Psalm 69 is rather explicit. Literally, we have in prophecy, in Psalm 69 and verse 21, what is taking place at this moment at the crucifixion. Jesus asks for this. He says, I thirst to fulfill the prophecy that was given of him. Now, this is so very interesting. Jesus lived a life of prophecy. You probably heard it emphasized last week. At some point, if not on Sunday morning, and I hope you were in church on Sunday morning, Jesus' birth was one of prophecy. Where he would be born, Bethlehem, was prophesied of in the book of Micah, I believe chapter 5 and verse 2. Jesus departing into Egypt 
and then God calling his son out of Egypt. He departs into Egypt to hide from Herod's wrath, and then he goes into Nazareth, which is also a fulfillment of prophecy, because he is the branch, and the root of that word Nazareth is netzer, which means greenery or branches. Jesus' life was one that was of prophecy, the type of work that he would do. So many details of his life, the location of his life in various cities, his identity, that he would be a son of David, that he's the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed, all of the work that he would do, all of this is foretold in advance, and there are as many prophecies about his crucifixion and the details of his crucifixion as any other thing. His hands and his feet being pierced, the fact that they beat him, the fact that he was betrayed by a friend, the fact that all of his other friends forsook him and fled, the fact that they gave him vinegar, as we just saw, the fact that they gambled over his clothing, and even many of the statements that he made upon the cross. That's all revealed hundreds of years prior in Old Testament passages. And so Jesus lived a life of prophecy, what we just read in John 19, that is our sovereign grace statement for today, was another one of these fulfilled prophecies. I thirst, fulfilling Psalm 69 and verse 21. So when Jesus says it is finished, knowing that all things have been fulfilled, knowing that all the scripture that he had to fulfill, all the prophecies, everything that he was supposed to do in this life, because the scripture cannot be broken, he has done. He now says it is finished. Everything I'm supposed to do is done. He says, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. He gives up the ghost and he dies. At minimum, it is finished refers to that. Yet, let's look at a deeper meaning of this passage, one that gives us great hope and great peace. All the work that Jesus had come to do was now complete. Jesus said back in John chapter 17 that he had finished all the work that the Father had given him to do up until that point. There would be other things that Jesus would have to do. Jesus would have to go to the cross. Jesus would fulfill the prophecies that were given about the cross, and Jesus would die for our sins. He would be raised again on the third day. All of those things are things Jesus would yet do. But up until this moment, in John chapter 17 and verse 4, everything the Father had given him to do, he had done. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. So Jesus had fulfilled all of the work that God had given him. And here in John chapter 19, as Jesus dies upon the cross, he is literally doing the very thing that God had told him to do, that God the Father had sent him into the world to do. Now, just briefly, what did Jesus come to do? He finished the work. It is finished. I finished the work that you've given me to do in the world. That begs the question then, what work did Jesus come to do? Well, there are several different things that Jesus came to do in his ministry. First of all, Isaiah 61 gives us a couple. Jesus was to come give beauty for ashes. He was to deliver the captives. He was to heal the sick. He was to raise the dead. He was to cleanse the lepers, give sight to the blind, give hearing to the deaf, to straighten withered limbs and, and raise those up who had been paralyzed so that they could walk again. Jesus came to give beauty for ashes. Number two, Jesus came to preach the gospel. The Spirit of the Lord is on him, has anointed him, that he should go and to preach the gospel of Christ. Again, Isaiah chapter 61 gives both of those, preaching the gospel and giving beauty for ashes. Jesus also, number three, came to set up his church. He says in Matthew chapter 16 that I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus built 
his church. And this actually fulfills prophecy in the book of Daniel, among other places in the Old Testament, that the time was coming when God himself would establish a kingdom in the world against the backdrops of other world empires such as Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. We learn that God will establish a kingdom, and it will have no end. And as Jesus begins his personal ministry, what does he begin by saying? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. God's kingdom is now here. I'm establishing it, and this kingdom will never end. It will continue as long as the world stands. As this world is destroyed, he will deliver up his kingdom, and his kingdom will be with him forevermore in its final phase with every citizen there in the personal presence of the king for all of eternity. And so Jesus came to set up his church, to establish his kingdom here in this world. Number four, Jesus came to save his people from their sins. Do you remember what the angel told Joseph in Matthew one twenty one? I hope you heard it quoted this past week as we thought about the Lord's coming into the world, his birth, his first advent when Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Jesus came to save his people. That's a possessive term, his people. They belong to him. He came to save his people from their sins. Did he do what he came to do? Well, listen to his dying words. It is finished. Jesus completed the work that the Father gave him to do. He shall save his people from their sins, and save them he did. But recall the sovereign grace verses that we considered in this series through John's gospel. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. John chapter 6 and verse 37. Jesus came down from heaven, not to do his own will, but the will of the Father that had sent him, that of all which the Father hath given him, he should lose nothing, but raise it up again at the last day. Is Jesus going to complete that work? Absolutely. He died for them, and he delivered them. They are secure in Christ. John chapter 10, My sheep hear my voice, I know them, they follow me, I give unto them eternal life, they shall never perish. Is that statement a reality? You better believe it is. It absolutely is a reality. John chapter 17, Jesus praying to the Father, as thou hast given him, the Son, power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. How does he purchase eternal life for his people? By dying for their sins upon the cross. Jesus saved his people from their sins, and they are secure in him regardless of whatever happens in this world, whatever they do, what others might do to them. Throughout our various crises and temptations and moments of personal failings and even destructive behavior, the Lord Jesus saved every single person that the Father sent him into this world to save. And we've emphasized that fact throughout this series because Jesus taught it plain as the nose on my face. Jesus saved these people from their sins. That's why you can look at the dying thief who says, Lord, remember me. I was a reviler 10 minutes ago, but now I'm begging you, Lord, remember me. And he says, today you're going to be with me in paradise. That man hadn't been baptized. That man wasn't a churchgoer. He wasn't religious. He didn't keep the law. He was being executed for breaking the law. And yet he was going to be with Jesus that day in paradise because it is finished. Because Jesus will have every single one of his. They will all know him. They will all be drawn into a relationship with him. They might be as evil as Saul of Tarsus. And yet Jesus arrested him by his grace. It could be a little baby. Some evil person takes their life before they can even enter into this world and live the sort of life that you and I have lived. Jesus is going to save them because it is finished from the least to the greatest. Every single 
heir of promise will be saved by the Lord Jesus Christ because it is finished. Because Jesus finished this work, salvation is a reality for the people of God. He has saved his people from their sins. His name is Jesus, meaning Savior, and a successful Savior is he. Do you recall earlier in the broadcast today where I said that we have a beloved hymn in our hymnal entitled, It Is Finished? I'm going to read you the words of this hymn. Hark the voice of love and mercy sounds aloud from Calvary. See, it rends the rocks asunder, shakes the earth and veils the sky. It is finished, it is finished, hear the dying Savior cry. It is finished, oh, what pleasure do these charming words afford. Heavenly blessings without measure flow to us from Christ the Lord. It is finished, it is finished, saints, the dying words record. Finished all the types and shadows of the ceremonial law. Finished all that God had promised. Death and hell no more shall all. It is finished, it is finished, saints, from hence your comforts draw. Tune your harps anew, ye seraphs, join to sing the pleasing theme. All on earth and all in heaven, join to praise Emmanuel's name. Hallelujah, hallelujah, glory to the bleeding lamb. Salvation is accomplished. Jesus has won the battle. It is finished. Again, I'm Ben Winslet, thanking you for listening to Words of Grace today, inviting you to write and let me know that you've received today's broadcast, and also to tune in again next week at this time. Until then, may the Lord's richest blessings be yours, is my prayer. If you enjoy the messages you hear on Words of Grace, consider this your invitation to visit a Primitive Baptist Church in your community. Copies of this and other broadcasts are available for download on iTunes and on our website. Address your correspondence to... Words of Grace Radio, 641 Moontown Road, Brownsboro, Alabama, 35741. Or visit us online at flintriverpbc.org.